On Pop Culture Confidential's first show of the new year, a true movie legend, Roger Corman. And professor of political science, Lily Gorin, talks pop culture in the age of Trump. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Biro. Happy New Year, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on Pop Culture Confidential. We have some big shows in 2017 as we head towards the Oscar season. Coming later this month, you won't want to miss my interview with award-winning filmmaker and cinematographer Kirsten Johnson. She talks about her Oscar shortlisted documentary, Camera Person. And the magical musical La La Land is one of the most critically acclaimed and Oscar-buzzed movies of the year. I have an exclusive interview with director Damien Chazelle, as well as the award-winning choreographer Mandy Moore. So, we hope you'll join us here in the new year. It's a year that may see some new direction in storytelling in pop culture since the election of Donald Trump. This is something we're going to explore here on this show in a very interesting conversation with the professor of political science, Lily Gorin. But first... What a privilege to start the year off with a true legend of American filmmaking, Roger Corman. Mr. Corman, who turned 90 last year, has been called the Pope of Pop Cinema, the undisputed king of the B-movie. Roger Corman is one of the most important and influential filmmakers of the past 50 years. With his over 400-plus films as producer, writer, and or director, he has brought wit, satire, and a whole lot of urgency and political commentary through his films. They include, for example, Crybaby Killer, starring Jack Nicholson from 1959, Dementia 13, which Corman produced and has a young Francis Ford Coppola directing, Wild Angels that Corman directed and starred Peter Fonda, and Boxcar Bertha, for which he found a director named Martin Scorsese. And of course, maybe his most well-known film, Little Shop of Horrors, which he produced and directed in 1960. You know, most people don't like to go to the dentist, but I rather enjoy it myself, don't you? <laughs> I mean, there's such, there's a real feeling of growth, of, of <laughs> progress when that, that old drill goes in. I mean, I'd almost rather go to the dentist than anywhere, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> now, no Novocaine, it dulls the senses. <laughs> This is gonna hurt you more than it is me. Oh, goody, goody, here it comes. <laughs> oh, my God, don't stop now! Roger Corman truly shaped the talents of some of Hollywood's biggest filmmakers and actors, giving them work on his films and mentoring them through the process. Scorsese, Coppola, Ron Howard, James Cameron, Jonathan Demme, Jack Nicholson, Robert De Niro, just to name a few. And as a distributor and passionate film lover, Roger Corman brought the works of, for example, Bergman, Truffaut, and Fellini to the States for the first time, exposing many young filmmakers and viewers to some of the greatest films in history. And Roger Corman is not slowing down. He has made yet another movie. It's a reboot of one of his career-defining films, Death Race 2000. Now Death Race 2050. It's produced by himself and his business partner and wife, Julie Corman. The movie takes place in the future where the U.S. is run by corporations and where the most popular event is a car race where drivers get extra points for taking down pedestrians. 
It's a commentary that may be even darker now than it was originally in 1975. I'm honored to talk to Mr. Roger Corman as he's getting ready for the release of Death Race 2050, and I started by asking him about his incredible influence on American filmmakers. And when he found, for example, Coppola, Scorsese, or Ron Howard, could he already see their talents? What was it he saw in them? Um, I definitely felt they had the ability, the talent, the drive, the creativity to be successful. I had no idea how successful they would be, but I was convinced uh, that they would do well. What was the greatest effect on or advice you think that you gave that propelled these young filmmakers? Well, first, I would say that I think they would have achieved the same success if they had never met me. Oh uh, no! They, no, achieved... no. <laughs> they would not say that. <laughs> I have read enough about you and them to know that that's not true, Mr. Corman. <laughs> <laughs> well,、um, maybe, maybe not. I think what I, I did teach them a little bit. Was、um, the value of pre-production planning?、Mm-hmm. I'm a great believer in planning as much of your picture as possible before shooting, and then know that you will probably vary from that plan during shooting. So you come in completely prepared to shoot your picture, but also prepared to make. Some changes from your plan as you go along. I remember、uh, Marty Scorsese, who did his first Hollywood picture for me called Boxcar Bertha. I talked to him about the sketching of the shots、uh, in advance, and、um, I said, you know, sketch your, your, all your shots in advance, which I never did. I would sketch maybe eighty or ninety percent in advance. He sketched one hundred percent of his shots in advance. And I thought that's the best dedication to filmmaking I've seen. But was he open to the flexibility you're talking about as well? Yes, because actually he did. When we were on the location and we were dealing with old trains, it became very evident that the movement of the trains was very slow and very complicated, and we had to revise some of the planning. To allow for what was happening with the trains, and move some of the movement of the trains to the second unit. And most directors, including me when I was directing, don't like to give too many shots to the second unit. But I explained to Marty that if you sketch each one of these shots and go over them with the second unit director, you're still directing it. He simply. The hands-on of your vision, and that's what Marty did, and that was what enabled us、uh, to bring the picture in on schedule and on budget. So Marty was an example, as have all the others, of、uh, really planning and knowing exactly what they planned to do, but again, being flexible. Right, right.、Um, well, that brings us to Death Race 2050, starring none other than Malcolm McDowell. How is this version staying true to your legacy? Would you say? Well, it starts a little bit from, matter of fact, more than a little bit. It starts a great deal from the original Death Race 2000, which was a futuristic action picture with humor and with a little bit of social and political comment, and.、Uh, Universal bought the remake rights 
and made several versions, and they made them well, but they made them as straight action pictures. Mm -hmm. And I thought, uh, they're missing something here because they've taken out the humor and they've taken out uh, the political comment. And I thought that gave more complexity to the picture. And I was talking to some of the executives there, and they said, well, if you think that's important, would you like to come back and do a new one and put back your uh, political comment, your social comment, as it were, and also bring back the humor that you had in the first one? So essentially, that's what I did. Citizens, you know who I am, the chairman of the United Corporations of America. I love you. Europe, Asia, cancer. We've kicked them all in the ass. The only thing that can kill an American is another American. Survival of the fittest, do or die. Citizen, get ready to race for your lives! And you mentioned the political, uh, to me, really, your 400 plus films, they seem to have a great urgency, all of them with meaningful social commentary, whether it's death races or, or monsters. What would you say is the political commentary in, in this picture? Well, in this particular picture, we're talking about the violence in society and the fact that uh, you can go back to the Roman gladiatorial games. Uh, violence as entertainment was used to keep down uh, the working classes. And I wanted to continue that concept. And when I started to think about the work, working classes and people, I thought the ultimate would be to put the violence, put the people into the violence. And that's where I got the idea of the killing of the pedestrians, mm -hmm. which, of course, it didn't start out as a comedy. But as soon as I thought that part of the race, you get points for how fast you can drive and how many pedestrians you could kill. I thought it was a great idea, but I thought you can't take it too seriously. And that's when uh, the picture moved to a black comedy to allow me to put this uh concept, which is a, a social concept, into it, but to do it uh, in the vein of a comedy. And from a political standpoint, um, we, the name of the United States is changed from the United States of America to the United Corporations of America. And the uh, president has become the chairman. Now, weirdly enough, we shot the picture in February when there were many candidates for president. And I thought one of the candidates was actually rather funny. And so, and I liked the fact that he had this strange comb over hair, hairdo. <laughs> you we're thinking of the same person. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly the same person. So we patterned the chairman a little bit after this a politician. I never dreamed uh, 
that he would emerge. I thought he was just one of the guys who was in the race and somebody else would emerge. So suddenly, uh, this picture goes out in January in the United States and the new president will go will be inaugurated in January, and there are definite parallels uh, between the two. So your picture really foresaw the future more than you could even know. <laughs> yes, it was, uh, it was just a, a vague thought in that particular area, and really more of a joke than anything else. Uh, but we... Uh, we we foresaw more than we thought we were doing. And 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 besides the sort of Trump Trump esque political, um, you can really feel, for example, films and franchises like Hunger Games have been so um, influenced by your work. Yes, uh, as a matter of fact, it's been uh, one of the reasons that we made it. An Italian journalist was interviewing me, and he asked me what he what I thought of the fact that the Hunger Games uh, was taken from Death Race 2000. And I said, uh, uh, the Hunger Games is very similar to Death Race 2000, but I don't think it was taken from it. I think these ideas are sort of in the air, and uh, people... Uh, people grabbed them, but that was one of the things that, uh, uh, that led me to come back to this when uh, this journalist mentioned the Hunger Games. Um, and you're still working so much. Um, do you do things differently now that you're 90 than you were, say, when you were 20 in terms of filmmaking? I think pretty much the same, I think. Physically, I'm moving a little slower and probably I'm... Uh, uh, thinking a little slower, but uh, the basic ideas are still there. I am married to a screenwriter, so we were ha very happy to hear you in, in one of the talks you held recently that you always say that the script is the core. Do you still feel that way about the writers and the screenplays? Yes. I think um, uh, having been at various times a writer, director, and producer, uh, I'm, at least have some familiarity with all of these. I'm a great believer in the auteur theory of uh, the importance of the director, but I think both the producer and particularly the writer are not getting the credit they deserve because I do believe everything starts with the original idea and with the script. I've never seen a director make a good picture from a bad script. I've seen a couple of directors make bad pictures from good scripts, but that's a different aspect. I think the script dictates a large percent of what that picture is going to be. Are there screenwriters and directors today that really impress you? Um, yes, they are. I can't name them specifically. Uh, I like the work of Christopher Nolan uh, mm. very much, particularly because he's dealt uh, with science fiction subjects, uh, but at the same time, he does them uh, uh, with a great deal of humanity. Oh, and of course, uh, somebody who started with me, Jim Cameron, who is uh, one of the great directors who is able to use uh, the special effects, the computer graphics, um, science fiction ideas, and still bring uh, the characters to life. One of the problems with these big pictures, I think, is that there's more thought on the special effects than the people. And people like Jim Cameron and Christopher Nolan are able to deal with the effects and still 
bring you a personal story. They do have a slightly bigger budget that you have worked with on most of your pictures, right? <laughs> That's right. To Universal, it's a low-budget picture. To me, it's a big-budget picture. Oh, yeah? How much is the budget, if I may ask, on this last one? Uh, they've asked me to be vague okay. on, <laughs> on the budget, so I'll settle for what I just said. It's a big budget for you. Uh, Mr. Corman, it was such an honor to talk to you, and we're looking forward to this coming up in, in uh, early next year, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Christina. Thank you so much to Mr. Roger Corman. Death Race 2050 will be released on DVD and Blu-ray in January in the U.S. and in February here in Sweden. And now, talking about pop culture and commentary on society, I recently read some very interesting articles and writings by political scientist Lily Gorin, and I really wanted to talk to her more about her themes, so I'm so pleased that Professor Gorin had some time to talk to me about popular culture and politics today, depictions of female presidents in TV and film, and how this may change post-election, and entertainment in the age of Trump. Lily Gorin is a professor of political science and global studies at Carroll University in Wisconsin. She's a popular culture expert and the co-author of books such as Women and the White House, as well as Mad Men and Politics. Professor Gorin, thank you so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on today. One of the things that really I'm interested in with this show um, in particular is seeing how pop culture influences politics and society and how politics and society are influenced by pop culture, which basically is your field. Um, tell me a little bit about what interested you and how you got into this. Well, I, I, you know, I have a lot of training and I teach political theory. And, and so in political theory, obviously we read texts um, to understand ideas about politics and about society and about justice and about, you know, how individuals interact and about gender roles and, and so forth. And I, to some degree, took that, took that training and um, started to move it into other realms of what I consider to be texts. And, and one of the areas that I had also studied as a political theorist were the works of Elizabethan playwrights who were popular culture experts or are contributing to popular culture at the time. And I sort of saw lots of the same kinds of um, ideas and tensions and, and just really a lot also with regard to gender being sort of moved around and experimented with um, in contemporary Anglo-American popular culture. So mostly, you know, American um, sort of cultural artifacts, but also looking at a lot of British um, productions in terms of television and film. Um, unfortunately, my language capacities are limited. <clears throat> and so while I like to watch um, other other productions from other countries, I've been particularly fond of Borgen, as so many people right. are. Um, but, you know, I also sort of feel like I'm only understanding it in translation, uh, which for me is sad, but that's the best I can do. So my, you know, my emphasis is really sort of on English language, popular culture, and also American um, popular culture, because I also study American politics. And so that's where I sort of pull together my training as a political theorist and my interest in political theory, 
with my work in American politics. Right, right. Well, before we move on to sort of this election cycle, I'm really interested. You've written several very interesting books about women and politics and popular culture um, and sort of the empowerment of, of, of women as portrayed in, in film and television and, and, and magazines. Um, how, how it's a big question, but how would you say that feminism in pop culture has been portrayed sort of leading up to Hillary? Well, I, I think there are a variety of ways in which um, it was portrayed in terms of, you know, sort of standard presentations. You've had, obviously, you had the, the 2004 series Commander-in-Chief with um, uh, Gina Davis, um, and you had, you know, you had the more recent television show in the United States, Madam Secretary, uh, with Taya Leone. Um, and, and so you, you've had, you know, some of these, you know, here is a woman president, here is a woman secretary of state. Um, but you also have a variety of other places where you've seen sort of women in positions of power. And I would also point to a, a television show in the United States, like The Good Wife, which mm -hmm. just ended last spring, where um, the main character, Alicia Florek, ran for office. But that was late in the series. But it was also about seeing her as a you know, as a powerful um, attorney in a major Chicago law firm, and, and to some degree, and also, obviously, uh, Diane Lockhart, who's her colleague, um, being portrayed in these positions of power. Of course, we have the television show, show Scandal at the moment, which is quite popular, and also shows a number of different characters in, in political power, also outside of political power. Um, and so it's not necessarily just seeing like here is somebody who is female and in the presidency in popular culture. You also saw that in the last season of 24 and Cherry Jones was the president. Um, but but it's also seeing other representations. Um, obviously, there's the satire Veep mm -hmm. um, which, you know, again, sort of shows some of the foibles of issues around uh, women and men in in political power and and outside of the the inner circle, um, and and so there's there's a lot of different ways that you have sort of seen some of these questions of feminism at least being um, sort of teased at and and sort of looked at and and manipulated and you know how does it look when a woman is in a position of power? How does she deal with her family? How does she make decisions? Um, and, and so we can imagine what that might be like. Do you think now, after the way the election has gone, that, that Hillary lost, that, that these portrayals will change? Um, it, it may. Um, and then again, I think it's been, it's not been a sort of constant, um, positive, uh, you know, sort of strong feminist portrayal. It's been a lot of sort of contested interpretations of what does it mean for a woman to be in power. And I think a lot of what we sort of see in, in our culture in general, popular culture consumption aside, but in, in our culture and our society in general, is anxiety around the potential of women in power. Um, and, and to some degree, often the backlash against that idea. Um, and a lot of what popular culture, I think, has been doing with regard to women in power is, you know, is sort of tapping into some of that anxiety so that it's rare that you see, 
you know, a sort of female character who looks like President Jeb Bartlett on the West Wing, you know, who's sort of almost consistently morally correct and making the right decisions and winning. Right. Um, and a lot of, a lot more of the time you see women in positions of power and having to contend with, you know, the reality that many of us face is, you know, people doubting us, we doubt ourselves. Um, and, and sort of it's, it's, you know, not, not uncommon also for men, obviously. Um, but it's, it's not necessarily a consistently positive and successful portrait. And so I have a feeling we'll probably see more of that. Um, Trump is really a pop cultural figure. I mean, that's basically what he was. How much do you think that is a factor in him taking this election? Um, I, I mean, I think that, and, and I talked about this a lot with my students during the whole primary period, that, you know, that Donald Trump would um, call up the television shows. He he wasn't necessarily required to be on screen when he was talking to the media, particularly the television media, um, whereas every single other politician, male or female, is usually in a studio, in a suit, um, you know, being interviewed in a more formal sort of setting. And so in a certain sense, um, Trump uh, made use of his um, connections and and to some degree played on his capacity to, you know, call up uh, Good Morning America or the Today Show or Fox News or whomever and, and you know, do an interview on the phone, um, which means that he and, and whatever he had to say was also going to be the story of the day. That's interesting. So he was allowed to sort of do it in any way he wanted to. Yeah. And I mean, if you go back and look at sort of the conversations that were going on in the primary before voting even started all, all of last fall, um, that was that was a lot of what he was doing. He was just, you know, he wasn't even and he's in New York, so he could have gone down to any of the studios and done, you know, a sort of normal political interview. But he called in. But why did they say, OK, is it because the media has just been so used to dealing with him this way that one didn't even reflect or like, no, you have to come here. <laughs> uh, I, I think part of it is that they, they were more, I guess, used to it to a degree, but also anything apparently having to do with Trump upped everybody's ratings. Right. Um, and so they would sort of take, take any Trump they could get more or less in any form that it came in and, you know, there's been a lot of critique of the, of, I think it was particularly, I think, CNN, who would just, you know, sort of play his entire um, rallies in right. the fall, last fall. And they wouldn't do that for any other, any other candidate. Um, so you'd have like an hour of Trump at a rally talking to, um, talking to the people who were at the rally, you know, just just on television in perpetuity and, and you know any other candidate be it Ted Cruz or Scott Walker or you know Jeb Bush could not get that kind of airtime and that's been a really big complaint from other campaigns mm -hmm. and so that's that's the primary campaign that's not even the general election um, and and so you know that but that became the norm right. And so that that sort of shaped the consumption also of Trump 
because every time they did that, ratings went up. And so why not keep doing it? Talking sort of about post the election, what do you make of the Trump versus SNL? Why is he so adamant about taking on that? Well, I mean, I, I you know, I, I'm not a psychologist, and so I'm not going to go into and <laughs> a deep, you know, analysis of Donald Trump's personality. But you know, he seems he seems to respond to slight. Right. I think this has been a pattern that that we've seen with regard to him throughout the entire campaign um, and and before the campaign that, you know, he would he did the same sort of thing in New York on a smaller scale. And and what happened, you know, Saturday Night Live is making fun of him um, in a variety of ways. I mean, on some level, I think they're also they also contributed to to some degree an inoculation of of him. Um by, by having Baldwin, you know, sort of play him as a kind of, you know, dopey guy. Um, and so he didn't seem particularly threatening in the portrayal. Um, but it's not necessarily a positive, you know, glorying portrayal of Donald Trump. It's a satire. Um, and and I'm, I'm not necessarily sure that Donald Trump likes to see himself satirized. But you you think he is genuinely pissed off. He doesn't see it as a as a good sort of media thing to go do back and forths with them. Uh, I mean, you know, I think he I think he does all of this. I, I think that the scale of the the sort of back and forth is is kind of perpetual. You know, he does he does this kind of attacking on particular reporters back and forth. Um, and we saw it, you know, obviously we saw it throughout the, not only the presidential campaign, but the primaries, you know, he and Ted Cruz were attacking each other back and forth. Mm. Um, he was picking on Jeb Bush. Um, and, you know, some of the, some of the candidates sort of stood up to him more and then he would come back at them. Um, and, and so I think that's, that's also, you know, what Trump does it seems is he he doesn't let things go right right um you you've written uh, a lot about sort of the pop cultural stories in 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 different times times of crisis and different political discourse that how things have changed um do you have an idea of what kind of stories we may be seeing going forward in the trump presidency well i mean and this this remains sort of an area that i'm i'm interested to see how it it does develop um you know we recently had uh, the production of this, this, you know, this, uh, man in the high castle. Um, and the second season is, is about to, you know, start. Um, and, and again, that's sort of about this idea of fascism in the United States, um, in, in a, you know, a sort of different historical outcome to World War II. Um, we've also had, you know, fleets and fleets of zombie, um, television over the last number of years. And zombies also indicate, you know, sort of this question of apocalypses and, and threats to the society. Um, and, and so there, there are sort of tropes that, that do sort of cycle through, um, you know, sort of the cultural zeitgeist, as you noted. Uh, and so I am intrigued to see, you know, will we have more, uh, 
more and more zombies or fewer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, and will, you know, will showrunners and creators be looking at, you know, sort of quote comfort food a la the recent, you know, reboot of the Gilmore girls, which everybody is, you know, is talking about as this kind of nice blanket that you could cocoon yourself in and, and sort of tune the world out because you just went back to sort of pleasant stars hollow. Um, will we have more of that kind of, you know, sort of, I don't want to say feel good, but, you know, sort of domestic, um, settings as opposed to, we've had a lot of, of political settings, mm-hmm. um, in scandal, um, and Madam Secretary, um, and also, you know, one of my favorite shows of the moment is The Americans, which I think is oh, an outstanding so great, yeah. television show and, and so fascinating on so many levels. Um, and also something like Mad Men, which, you know, again, is, is not a cocoon. It's not necessarily sort of domestic bliss or, you know, sort of uh, a quiet, um, you know, personal. It was quiet and personal, but it was also about the changing societal backdrop mm-hmm. um, and understanding when cultural um, change was happening and how it did and didn't affect individuals. Um, and it was also, I think about the refounding of the United States in the post-war period. Um, and, and I think some of those, those tensions that we saw there between, you know, sort of cultural shifts around sexuality and feminism and domesticity and, you know, consumer culture, we're still dealing with those. Um, so I, I think that I, I will be curious to see what's being pitched and what's being greenlit and what's going to turn up in our, you know, next fall and in the movie theaters um, and, and what, what, you know, the, the folks who make, make television think we want to see. Is the TV viewing, film viewing public as divided as the voting public seems to be? Will there be like some people need comfort and some want something else? Well, I mean, I think that I think that there, you know, there's been studies that show, you know, there are different different parts of the country, different ages, different voting demographics watch different things. Um and so the, the top 10 shows for Democrats and the top 10 shows for Republicans aren't necessarily the same shows. Right. And I'm talking about fiction. I understand the yeah. news and stuff. No, no, no. And yeah. this is these are fictional shows, you know, like like 24 was much more appealing, apparently, to Republican voters than Democratic voters. Okay. Um, and I, I believe Madam Secretary is much more appealing to Democratic voters than Republican voters. Mm, so that there, there have been sort of a studies to try to assess what, what on television appeals to different sort of political demographics. And obviously, you know, television is pitching also to this, you know, particular age cohort um, and oftentimes male as opposed to female, um, because that's where their advertiser dollars are going to come from. Um, and, and so you also then separate out streaming services, which are differently constructed. Um, and, and, and again, it's a sort of, it's a fragmented fictional universe or it's a fragmented universe presenting us with fictional narratives. Um, 
and and even then, you know, as I say, Mad Men was watched by a million people, um, an episode, which is like nothing right, right. when you compare it to like the Big Bang Theory. Um, and yet it became a part of the cultural discussion. I mean, it was referenced by the president in the State of the Union address. Banana Republic did a whole clothing, clothing line around it. Um, everybody knew about it, even if they didn't watch it. Right. Uh, and, and so so it's it's not necessarily only that a, a television show is consumed. It's also how does it sort of needle its way through our culture if it's very popular or if it's sort of popular in an interesting way. Um, and, you know, that's one of the things that's happened with like the television show Scandal, which, you know, has this whole Twitter engagement when people watch it on Thursday nights and Shonda Rhimes has been able to cultivate, you know, quite uh, a sort of empire for herself in a certain sense and good for her because, you know, she is female and African-American and there just aren't a lot of those right. kinds of showrunners. Um, but it's, it's kind of fascinating to sort of see, you know, why did this show hit and that one didn't? Um, and, and who is consuming these shows? Maybe I can call you back in, in, in the fall and see whether Stars Hollow has been attacked by zombies. <laughs> I'd be happy to talk about it. <laughs> or what has happened to the pop, the big popular culture shows co- going into the next administration over here? This was so interesting. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much to Professor Lily Gorin, as well as Roger Corman. His Death Race 2050 will be out very soon, both in the U.S. and here in Sweden. And thank you so much for joining us. Make sure to catch up on future and past shows on popcultureconfidential.com, iTunes, SoundCloud, and follow us on Twitter at podpopculture. And if you have the time, do us a solid. Go give us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud. That really helps us out and keeps us going. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, theme music by Karl Borg, and produced by René Wittestedt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. Thank you. Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes... Yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast.